right. Oh, I, I get that. Uh, trust me, I feel it. I'm, I have to listen to my own idiocy uh, three or four times. Uh, so I, I'm as sensitive to it as anyone. But it's it's. I think there's uh, there's a level where I think what we could we ha I have another way. I think we can start doing these without losing anything and actually gain back some of that. So I don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, thank all of you for joining. The Delusion Watery Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we are finally finishing out Chapter 3, Section 11, and we are going to be moving into Chapter 4 sometime next week. We may also be changing our time back to noon. We don't know yet. We're kind of playing this by ear. But given how uh, we've got kind of a smaller group uh, this week, and it's kind of been shrinking week on week, I'm uh, having a feeling uh, we may have to... Uh, move things over. Uh, any sort of upkeep, uh, some basic stuff. Uh, we are going to be uh, seeking more and more volunteers as we start actually having a lot more activity in the chat, despite people, fewer people joining this talk. There are a lot more talks going on and a lot more discussions happening on the server. Please do join. We have a new Baudrillard group that has started up. We need more people for that. Uh, we have uh, a bunch more Bergson uh, group uh, going, which is awesome. And uh, I think we're going to spend a lot more time in there than I think we originally anticipated. So we have a lot more needs. Uh, please do join up. Uh, and along with that, please do uh, head over to our Patreon, uh, patreon.org forward slash DGQC. Uh, and uh, please drop us a couple bucks. It helps keep a lot of the stuff running. Uh, the servers basically breaking even, but uh, we could always use a handful of more features. Um, but I think with that, I think we're going to move into... The reading for the day, and uh, I will go ahead and uh, kick it off. Unless anyone has anything left, is there anything I missed? Lou, Doug, Bill, Bo. I'm sorry, that's nope. not a Bill or Bo, I suppose. I shouldn't say Bill, Bo. Um, all right. Uh, in the territorial or even the despotic machine, social economic reproduction is never independent of human reproduction, of the social form of this reproduction. The family is therefore an open praxis, a strategy that is coextensive with the social field. The relations of filiation and alliance are determinate, or rather, determined as dominant. As a matter of fact, what is marked or inscribed on the socius directly is the producers, or non-producers, according to the standing of their family and their standing inside the family. The reproduction process is not directly economic, but passes by way of the non-economic factors of kinship. This is true not only with respect to the territorial machine and to local groups that determine the place of each member in social economic reproduction, according to one's own status from the standpoint of alliances and filiations, but also with respect to the despotic machine, which adds the relations of the new alliance and the direct filiation to the old alliance and filiations, whence the role of the sovereign's family in despotic overcoating and that of the dynasty, whatever its mutations, its indecisions, which are inscribed under the same category of new alliance. The process by no means remains the same in the capitalist system. Representation no longer relates to a distinct object, but to productive activity itself. The socius as full body has become directly economic as capital money. It does not tolerate any other preconditions. 
What is inscribed or marked is no longer the producers or non-producers, but the forces and means of productions as abstract quantities that become effectively concrete in their becoming related or their conjunction. Labor capacity or capital, constant capital or variable capital, capital affiliation or capital of alliance. Capital has taken upon itself the relations of alliance and affiliation. There ensues a privatization of the family according to which the family ceases to give its social form to economic reproduction. It is as though disinvested, placed outside the field. In the language of Aristotle, the family is now simply the form of human matter or material that finds itself subordinate to the autonomous social form of economic reproduction and that comes to take, place, take the place assigned it by the latter. That is to say that the elements of production and anti-production are not reproduced in the same way as humans themselves, but find in them a simple material that the form of economic reproduction pre-organizes in a mode that is entirely distinct from the form this material has as human reproduction. Precisely because it is privatized, placed outside the field, the form of the material or the form of human reproduction begets people whom one can readily assume to be all equal in relation to one another. But inside the field itself, the form of social economic reproduction has already preformed the form of the material so as to engender there where they are needed the capitalist as a function derived from capital and the worker as a function derived from labor capacity, etc., in such a way that the family finds itself countersected by the order of classes. In this sense, indeed, segregation is the only origin of equality. So that's a lot. Why not start off with a very long paragraph here, right? Yeah, so I think that, like, you know, it sort of makes sense in the context of everything we've been talking about that, uh, you know, in capitalism, capital is the only value, so the family is disinvested. Um, I guess I'm curious about what other people's thoughts are on, like, what is more direct evidence we can see that this is going on. I was thinking something like the proliferation of, like, child labor, and uh, no, that was my first thought. I was curious if anybody else had other thoughts. I think uh, one of the ways for me is uh, the absolutely horrid way people are invested in what their two to three year old is going to be when they grow up uh, in a in a really strange way. There's a the old uh, joke that uh, existential comics has uh, where an old man's asking a little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she says, I want to be a princess. He says, no, how do you want to sell your labor? And it's a it's a cute joke, but that's uh, I've I've a kid who's turning three, and parents everywhere are very invested in exactly how the productive capacity of that child will grow and how to place them in the best way that capital may utilize them from the school that they go into when they're in preschool as if that's determinant of really the rest of their life rather than I don't know the normal social formation that is a family uh, that. It's just, it's a very different way of handling it, I think. Um, but it, I think for me, the other thing that comes up in this paragraph is 
Uh, again, like they've been talking about Oedipus and Capital, but here they state it very cleanly that uh, one of the other things that has happened is because Capital has supplanted how subjectivity is created inside of uh, the body without organs. Uh, what we're talking about now is that Capital comes first, and because of that, all of our axiomatics stem from Capital, and so what a family means and how it works, it's no longer what family meant sort of in the past or even what family means now because capital is what shapes the meaning of what family is these days uh, that capital is the axiomatic that kind of comes before it that was me not worrying about having to move forward and it just resulted in silence <laughs> um, so i will continue to the next paragraph <clears throat> This placing of the family outside the social field is also its greatest social fortune, for it is the condition under which the entire social field can be applied to the family. Individual persons are social persons first of all, i.e. functions derived from abstract quantities. They become concrete in the becoming related or the axiomatic of these quantities in their conjunction. They are nothing more nor less than configurations or images produced by the points signs, the breaks flows, the pure figures of capitalism. The capitalist as personified capital, i.e. as a function derived from the flow of capital, and the worker as personified labor capacity, i.e. a function derived from the flow of labor. In this way, capitalism fills its field of eminence with images. Even destitution, despair, revolt, and on the other side, the violence and the oppression of capital, become images of destitution, despair, revolt, violence, or oppression. But starting from non-figurative figures, or from the breaks flows that produce them, these images will themselves be capable of figuring and reproducing only by shaping a human material, whose specific form of reproduction falls outside the social field that nonetheless determines this form. Private persons are therefore images of the second order, images of images, that is, simulacra, that are thus endowed with an aptitude for representing the first order images of social persons. These private persons are formally delimited in the locus of the restricted family as father, mother, child. But instead of being a strategy that, through the action of alliances and filiations, opens onto the entire social field, is coexistent with it, and countersects its coordinates, it would appear that the family is now merely a simple tactic around which the social field recloses, to which it applies its autonomous requirements of reproduction, and that it counteracts with all its dimensions. The alliances and filiations no longer pass through people, but through money. So the family becomes a microcosm suited to expressing what it no longer dominates. In a certain sense, the situation has not changed, for what is invested through the family is still the economic, political, and cultural social field. It's breaks and flows. Private persons are an illusion, images of images or derivatives of derivatives. But in another sense, everything has changed, because the family instead of constituting and developing the dominant factors of social reproduction, is content to apply and envelop these factors in its own mode of reproduction. Father, mother, and child thus become the simulacrum of the images of capital, Mr. Capital, Madame Earth, and their child, the worker. With the result that these images are no longer recognized at all in the desire that is determined to invest only their simulacrum, 
the familial determinations become the applications of the social axiomatic. I believe this is them continuing the same point from the previous, but saying it in a, I think, a, a much more direct way that the concept of how a family has formed and the idea of family is something that may have existed in, uh, as they would say, despo despotic times or even uh, back in tribal primitive times. But as we move into capital, because capital now comes first, capital is now the thing that is exchanged. It's no longer filial relationships. It's no longer our lineage. It's no longer who we're related to, but capital. And capital is how we are related. Uh, that as that happens, we become actually in these roles that we have as family, we only exist as the simulacra of that. We, we are mother, father, and child insofar as Oedipus, uh, and this is, I mean, I'm not trying to jump ahead. I may have, I shouldn't have read this chapter earlier last night, but very much, uh, they speak with it at the very end here, the very idea the result that these images are no longer recognized at all in the desire that is determined to invest only in the simulacrum. Familial determinations become the application of the social axiomatic, uh, this assumption of the truth of how the social order works. Uh, we only exist in the simulacrum of it. There is no such thing as father, mother, child anymore. We only keep those roles on because it's the application of the social axiomatic which is needed by capital. Yeah, I was also wondering how technical this theory of images is that they employ here and from where they take this exactly. Like, I, I know that this is basically just a write-up of everything they did throughout the um, third chapter, but I'm not sure what exactly the reference for the images is. Like, where do they take it? But I read I read it in like a platonic sense, um, you know that that you've got the original model of the idea or the form, and then you have the images or copies of that, and then there's also these simulacra that aren't founded on forms and are sort of uh, ungrounded. And I think that's like a, a nice way of them saying what they're getting at here with the uh, the role of the family and the private person. And we've been getting into this. I know you have as actually specifically the two of you, but a few others getting into uh, Deleuze's sort of critique of, and use of Bergson in uh, a lot of how he views uh, images and uh, to use, they even use the term simulacra in here and how, uh, well, let's, let's actually read through. I'd love, because I know Lou, you've been reading through a lot of Bergson lately, right? Yes, but I think the the whole yeah, well yes that's part of why I uh, why I um, come to images explicitly here, but I haven't really gotten to meta and memory where this talk about images really starts yet. No, I I, I think we're gonna we're gonna end up having to do some readings on Bergson, um, and I've been diving deep into logic of sense, uh, which I think is. Uh, for me, it's been very useful to understand kind of how they view uh, the, the 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 sense of concepts and how uh, the paradoxes of thought can exist inside of your head and how those those things those those images uh, kind of become real. And a lot of that is taken from Bergson. A lot of that is taken from Bergson and kind of expanded upon. But to me, uh, I don't know. Uh, Platonic is close, I think, to how they're utilizing images here. Um, to 
the the way we believe things are, I think, has more of a material aspect, however, to Deleuze. Um, and I think that the way of thinking sort of through that is that very much these are material realities insofar as we believe them to be. And because they are the thing that comes first, they are the image that we assume all of this comes through. I think it it has an edge of the sort of concept of the platonic ideal, but I think it has a much more materialist aspect to it, which in itself seems contradictory, but I think I'm making a point here that might be able to get across. I mean, what from what I understand how Bergson, what Bergson does and how Deleuze uses Bergson, it's basically that you can with Bergson um, get to something like the platonic ideas. Okay, okay, but you get the images of platonic ideas without really the platonic ideas. Like uh, the, you get the images are actually the thing. Correct. But I, and that's got to do with like in the appendix to Logic of Sense, Deleuze talks about overturning Platonism and how the simulacra sort of, uh, yeah, mess up the whole system. And uh, I mean, the Plat order of the models and the images. I mean, um, I don't actually know any of these ancient, ancient Greek um, philosophers really. But um, my understanding is that um, Bergson's opposition to basically all these um, Platon and Alice, Plato and Aristotle would be that they are both um, that they both have the problem that they mix or that they don't really think time that they have both this. Um, Static view of time, which in different ways, but they both have the have it. I don't know uh, if Brooks or anyone else who's read more of Logic and of Sense than me can speak to this, but I think there's something going on there uh, where there's a relation between simulacra and like surfaces uh, as opposed to like. Was talking about depths and the spatium in uh, difference in repetition. I haven't read enough. Well, I've read enough of Logic of Sense, but I wouldn't say that I understand it enough to be able to do, uh, have a more authoritative and deep discussion quite yet. Uh, I'm I'm trying to go back through and reread my notes and try to compare it against uh, Bergsonism and a few other of Deleuze's writings, because again, a lot of it is from Bergson. So like if we, if, for, for Bergson, when we talk about images, uh, I'm going to steal his term matter images, the idea that reality is made of these images, uh, we perceive them first, and those things are the ones that matter. That That's, that's what matter is made of, essentially. Um, so to quote, perception, Bergson argues instead, is outside, in matter, insofar as our body is just an image among other images. Perception is material, just as matter is already perception, although an unconscious one. Uh, this, I think, really goes into logic of sense and how Deleuze views and how Guattari views uh, sort of the unconscious and how it operates, that it is, that it is material, that it 
it is matter at, at this sort of deep level. It's not uh, super platonic where it's something that exists above in a sort of idealistic non-material reality, but instead we're talking about the, the way people perceive things is itself material in that image. So when we're talking about here, they're trying to get across the point, and I think a, a decent amount of this may be translation or how they're writing, but when they talk, starting from non-figurative figures or from breaks flows that produce them, these images will themselves be capable of figuring and reproducing only by shaping a human material whose specific form of reproduction falls outside of the social field that nonetheless determines this form. The social field is capital in the socius. They're referring to the family, which exists outside of the social field and they say that that's very fortunate, but the person himself, because we are created as subjective underneath sort of how capital works, it says private persons are therefore images of the second order. They're images of images, that is simulacra, that are thus endowed with an aptitude for representing the first order images of social persons. These private persons are formally delimited in the locus of the restricted family uh, that capital requires as father, mother, child. This is the necessity of the axiomatic, the fam familial determinations in the social axiomatic of capital. But instead of being a strategy that through the actions of alliances and filiations, which we learned about uh, in the primitive times and even in despotic times where uh, my lineage, who I can marry, how that my family is ultimately how I'm able to sort of have productive reality. Uh, this opens onto the entire social field. There's no, there's no direct way that my family relates to anyone else as family qua family. Family is now a tactic around which the social field recloses, to which it applies its autonomous requirements of reproduction and that it counteracts with all its dimensions. Uh, the alliances and affiliations no longer pass through people, but through money. So family becomes a microcosm suited to expressing what it no longer dominates. Uh, it expresses the exchange of capital. Uh, how, how we are related and how we are connected is through these exchanges of capital and not necessarily directly alliance and affiliations. Capital is our alliance and affiliations now. And so that's when they talk about the images, they mean in this sense that there is a, a material reality to the image of the family, but we are now two steps removed from when the family was actually the first order of how we dealt with each other. Is that a fair breakdown, Lou? Is that making more sense? Not sure I'm here, the, uh, the authority here, but... Uh... Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I'm literally trying to talk, to, like, I'm trying to explain my understanding to your question. So, don't hesitate to like, uh, to ask, like, break it down because the, the, the part where I, I break apart on this, is, um, I, I'm having issue just from an intuitive perspective, uh, understanding how family is not directly. Uh, how we do relate to each other in capital. I get the idea of these flows and these breaks are the things that do it, but uh, we still have dynasties and dynasties absolutely come first. I, I know a lot of wealthy people and their kids being successful, their kids continuing the family name, the, the, the alliances and affiliations they make with other families are as much now as they ever were in the despotic. They exist now and I'm not quite sure that I buy 100% that these things have moved into a realm where capital is purely uh, 
how these things are done because it's not necessarily. There's a lot of still that weird marry into this family so we can have an alliance thing happening at a, um, uh, I think, a less direct way. But it fucking happens. It's creepy. But Yeah, I think Alyosha is right that you could see that as a form of re-territorialization and these dynasties are sort of uh, repetitions of the... the um, form of the despot right there's always the the uh you know patriarch essentially mm. so my question would be isn't that exactly the capitalist mode of how family functions because well the second sentence in the chapter in the section is the family is a, therefore an open praxis a strategy that is coextensive with the social field the relations of affiliation in the line are determinant or rather determined as dominant um, so my understanding was that um, this basically um, that uh, this uh, this whole um, alliance and filiation thing is now subsumed as praxis of capital and it's in that sense coextensive with the social field so the question wouldn't be as much as how fits current day dynasties into this as much as um, how were um, family practice was family praxis in the past or in the um, in the um, despotic system different and I thought the point here was that there you had a logic of the family or of how affiliation and alliance worked that had its own logic right so it it had it was its own its own um its own um, social logic of how how family works and now the logic of how family works is subsumed in the logic of capital so the the alliances and affiliation that the family um, facilitates is completely determined by the logic of capital or completely determined seems oh, the wrong, uh, the wrong com uh, vocabulary maybe but you get my point right yes and I and I think uh, Alyosha is continuing that and he says uh, his joke is that uh, it's not like Crusader Kings 3 uh, families marrying for power and territory don't really happen, even though it does a little bit, but it's more of a business transaction. Again, for me, let's take a very simple example, and that's the Trumps and the Kushners. Uh, two, I don't know, however you want to feel about it, but two very powerful real estate families in New York uh, who basically married their kids off uh, and combined the families together. It, it had that essence to it. It, it it has that that classic sort of alliance and filiation setup. Yes, Guillotine agreed. But I think th this is where. So so it is it that uh, there's capital that sort of exists and that's really where the happened. Whereas before they had their own logic separate from that of the direct exchange value of the marriage. So that's where I'm getting kind of stuck. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. So I don't know enough about real uh, how how this actually worked before capitalism and how families are specifically dynasties operated then. 
but my impression was that the listen category are saying that then in the despotic system we do not have a pure economic transaction that in these in these in these familial um praxis things line uh, private persons are an illusion images of images derivatives of derivatives the idea of uh, once upon a time we were very clear uh, my daughter is marrying the lord's daughter lord's son in order to uh, bind our families and you'll be happy about it and that's the way it works whereas now we have this uh, sort of layer of capital is the reason a lot of these things happen and <laughs> But we've assumed it in this story of, uh, oh, well, no, they've actually fallen in love and they have the freedom of, you know, getting together and uh, they'll make a family. But it's 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 just what you do kind of thing. The story behind all that. I don't know. I, it's worth it. We'll save that for the review. It's going to be worth talking through. Any last thoughts before I move on to the next paragraph? I don't want to get too mired. The family becomes the sub-aggregate to which the whole of the social field is applied. Since each person has his own private father and mother, it is distributive sub-aggregate that simulates for each person the collective whole of social persons and that closes off his domain and scrambles his images. Everything is reduced to the father-mother-child triangle, which reverberates the answer, daddy-mommy, every time it is stimulated by the images of capital. In short, Oedipus arrives. It is born in the capitalist system of the application of first-order social images to the private familial images of the second order. It is the aggregate of destination that corresponds to an aggregate of departure that is socially determined. It is our intimate colonial formation that corresponds to the form of social sovereignty. We are all little colonies, and it is Oedipus that colonizes us. When the family ceases to be a unit of production and of reproduction, when the conjunction again finds in the family the meaning of a simple unit of consumption, it is father-mother that we consume. In the aggregate of departure, there is the boss, the foreman, the priest, the tax collector, the cop, the soldier, the worker, all the machines and territorialities, all the social images of our society. But in the aggregate of destination, in the end, there is no longer anyone but daddy, mommy, and me. The despotic sign inherited by daddy, the residual territoriality assumed by mommy, and the divided, split, castrated ego. Isn't this operation of flattening, folding, or application what leads Lacan to say, willingly betraying the secret of psychoanalysis as an applied axiomatic? What appears to come, what appears to come most freely into play in what is the analytic dialogue, in fact, depends on a sub-foundation that is perfectly reducible to a few essential and formalizable articulations. Everything is preformed, arranged and advanced. The social field, where everyone acts and is acted upon as a collective agent of enunciation, an agent of production and anti-production, is reduced to Oedipus, where everyone now finds himself cornered and cut along the line that divides him into an individual subject of that statement, an individual subject of enunciation. The subject of the statement is the social person, and the subject of enunciation, the private person. So, it's your father, so it's your mother, so it's you. 
the familial conjunction results from the capitalist conjunctions insofar as they are applied to private persons. Daddy, mommy, me. One is sure to re-encounter them everywhere, since everything has been applied to them. The reign of images is the new way in which capitalism utilizes the skizzes and diverts the flows. Composite images, images flattened onto other images, so that when this operation reaches its outcome, the little ego of each person related to its father-mother is truly the center of the world, much more underhanded than the subterranean reign of the fetishes of the earth or the celestial reign of the despot's idols is the advent of the Oedipal narcissistic machine. No more glyphs and hieroglyphs will have the real objective reality, our Kodak vision. To every man, to every woman, the universe is just a setting to the absolute little picture of themself, herself, a picture, a Kodak snap in a universal film of snaps. Each person is a little triangulated microcosm. The narcissistic ego is identical with the Oedipal subject. Anyone want to dive in? Because this is a really great paragraph. Yeah, I agree with uh, Tiernan that the end of that paragraph burns. It's like, I mean, to me, they're just really demonstrating the like construction of the the ego from the like social unconscious and. Uh, I mean, I don't grasp every last thing they say, but just sort of that that uh, movie that they're um, illustrating here is very powerful to me. Like the uh, everything being reduced to this narcissistic ego. Uh, the the continuous use of Kodak vision, and I would I would say that we could probably modernize that and talk through computer vision or the ubiquity of cameras on cell phones and Facebook vision or Instagram vision uh, that actually may even make it a little bit more brutal. And I, I come back to, a, I was reading, uh, and I mentioned it, uh, I think last week or the week before, I was going through and reading some of Sai Qutub's work uh, he was kind of the founder of Islamism, extremists as we know it today. Uh, but he wrote extensively, and I just love it because I grew up in Colorado and I've been around yards my entire life. But the lawns of the suburbs were a specific thorn in his side and proof of the decadence of American capitalism. Uh, the people who would spend their entire weekend uh, hedging and edging and cutting and trimming and making their yards look perfect and never once actually enjoying their yards. They weren't outside playing in them. They just are there sort of to prove that they are working and doing a thing. And then that's it back to looking at it. Um, but I, I, I really do like that last bit to every man, to every woman, the universe is just a setting to the absolute little picture of himself or herself. The idea that the world exists as a setting for things of our own creation and our own world is such a solipsistic, gross, egocentric view. And it's absolutely, it's, it's, uh, I, I've been reading a lot of books on how on capitalist subjectivity and images in capitalism and how it creates representation. And it's, everything just is always pointing towards that. And, uh, I, I do want to go back a little bit. Um, the, 
the first sentence of this, I want to kind of get people's thoughts on because it says um, the family becomes the sub aggregate to which the whole of the social field is applied. Uh, since each person has his own private father and mother, it is distributive sub-aggregate that simulates for each person the collective whole of social persons that closes off his domain and scrambles his images. Uh, as I've talked about, Oedipus becomes this thing that we say uh, is so ingrained in us that our images are all shaped through that. And so because everything gets reduced to this point, we're able to look at everything and we are almost forced to that, uh, especially in... I, modern society, for sure. Um, we see everything as father, mother, son, and that we have a father relationship with people as a child, a mother relationship, or we are the father or mother, and everything is reduced there. Um, it rings true in online circles where you see people saying, uh, God Emperor Trump or Daddy Trump, or how they have the reverence of the father there. It, 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 it speaks a lot, I think, to a lot of the political discourse in America today. It just rang with me. I don't know if anyone else has good examples of that, but it just felt spot on for me. I'm trying to think of a way to see it from like sort of the other side of uh, the aisle and how the liberals kind of, they, they, you know, the stereotype is that they want the government to do all the things and the, that they sort of invest it as this father figure instead of, uh, you know, thinking about working collectively to save ourselves. Or they do it the other way, which is the the mommy uh, is is more the liberal side of things, mm -hmm. given how much they've recently been uh, diving into adoring Nachi Pelosi and the yas queen of RGB, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I don't. It feel it feels much more that direction, um, but again, I think it's it's. It, uh, America is very good at being sort of the uh, the best at being <laughs> made this way by capitalism. Yeah, and, actually, that's a good point. Even like Joe Biden is sort of a, a matronly figure here. We just want normalcy. We want uh, you know this loving figure after the horrors of Trump. Yeah, it's not about strength. It's not about changing things or persevering or charging ahead. It's a return to safety and calm, mm -hmm. and it's the the response to. Uh, not to edipalize everything because that's what we're fucking doing, but it's kind of fun to think of it this way. But, you know, you have the abusive father and then you have the mother saying, hey, it's okay. Things are going to be okay. We can all still get along. We're still a family. We're still a family and we stick together. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a very tropey way of a mom in an abusive relationship to handle it. I want to add uh, in terms of the American... Uh, American. The, the other things uh, who was asking earlier examples of how it's affecting family and things like that. Um, the thing that came to mind was Citizens United, in that uh, corporations have the same status as uh, human subjects, and so I can more clearly see where that comes from if, with capitalism as, as as the root. Yeah, that's a good point. That sort of makes a lot of sense from this. Uh you know, different layers of sub-aggregates sub perspective. Yeah, Brooks, just as a useful summary, you say we're two steps removed from capitalism. Is it um, I mean, two steps removed from the original family model? So it's the first step, just start with capital, and then the second step is how that restructures the family? Or what, what, what is 
that's for clarity. So, so how how I how the reason I say that is because they use the term in the last paragraph, uh, image of an image. So, uh, before that, it w family was just sort of the way things worked. It was the socius. It was the the body without organs. Uh, it was part and parcel of everyday life. And then at some point, we gained the the image of the family, and that was much more in the despotic times. And so the image of the family became the image of family specifically, how I relate to them, how they get married, uh, in anarchistic ways. But now we live in a place where we have an image of, of a family. And so we're no longer the family, we're no longer the image of that, but we now exist two steps removed where we uh, place ourselves, uh, as they talk about here, um, the subject of the statement is the social person, how, how we deal with other people, and the subject of enunciation, the private person. So it's your father, so it's your mother, so it's you. The familial conjunction results from the capitalist conjunctions insofar as they are applied to palm, uh, private persons. One is sure to re-encounter them everywhere since everything has been applied to them. The reign of images is the new way in which capitalism utilizes schizes and diverse flows. The images of images uh, is sort of that... that second step removed. That's why I, I use that term. It may not be necessarily what they intended. I may be completely off, but that's kind of how I look at it. No, thanks. I think I was just trying to be specific what those two steps might be. But yeah, image of, on top of an image, that's there. Yeah, and, and again, I, I do think that when they talk about images, even images of images, they are talking about things that are quite material, that it's not anything that's removed or something that's idealized or any sort of step like that. It, all these things are quite real. It's just a matter of now we're talking about, sim, like they say, simulacrum. Uh, we have the image of an image, and it's not even doesn't even have the same sort of point of the original. And... Uh, when they finish yeah. off the paragraph, that last uh, ending of the paragraph is so brutal, but it's a really clean way of putting it. In terms of uh, simulacra being material, uh, an example that I found helpful in this regard was uh, like the, the artist Marcel Duchamp's uh, so-called ready-made goods, like the, the, the toilet as a uh, work of art. You know, it's not, um, it's not trying to be this, uh, particular model or particular uh, instance of like you know the ideal of the toilet anymore. It's something disconnected from that, and uh, but it's still real. It's just you know not really a toilet anymore. It's just this thing of its own. I was wondering if I could jump in here a little bit. I, I so I'm new to Deleuze, so my my take on it may be a little bit off in this. But I've been reading a Difference in Reputation, and in there I think they're making an argument. Um, and this is what uh, Doug has uh, alluded to earlier, that he's overturning Platonism. So in in the sense that there is no model and image, there's only image. And and I think he wouldn't make a case that the, there was an original family and now we have images of families due to capitalism. I mean, I think in his world, in Deleuze's world, is all images. I may be wrong. No, I think you're right, uh, and I think I should probably restate that I think you're right, and I, I'm trying to find a way to communicate what I'm trying, I think they're trying to communicate, and their language is excessively complex for me, but we're, to me, the way I read this is we are talking about uh, images of images of images of images, of images of, like kind of, it's images all the way down. It was always images, and always has been, kind of thing, um, and that's 
if if there is kind of an underlying point, they make they kind of say that a lot more clearly, actually, in logic and sense. And I think he gets into that in difference and repetition that we are talking ultimately about images of images of images all the way down. Um, specifically in this, the the way family functions, and I think it may be a, uh, I don't know, it's a the way that they talked about it early when we talked about the. Uh, the way that family functioned originally uh, was less of an image directly of family because family wasn't a thing that people discussed. It wasn't a concept. It wasn't an image in that time. Instead, it was just kind of how just society functioned in general. And so family as a concept, when we realized we could use these affiliations and alliances in order to gain power, and when I realized I could say that my family uh, was descended from God, we moved away from being able to, we moved away from family simply being used for pure production, which is what it was in the primitive, to being used as a uh, symbol, as an image of what family could be, and therefore as a sort of way to, I don't know, uh, overcode uh, to to handle flows differently. Um, and then now we're at the point where we have an, the family we have now and the way we look at family is an image currently, but it's of an image, which is reflective of how it was during despotic times, of what we now have also as an image. I mean, it, to me, it's an image, but originally the way that family functioned was just direct production across the board. That's what family did. It wasn't, no one used to walk around and go, well, my family is this. It was like, no, this is just how I related to other people. They never really talked about family in the, uh, and they, they say that pretty cleanly in the, in the primitive section of the chapter. Is that making sense? Am I even close, Doug? Lou? Bo? <laughs> am, more, am I just rambling here? So I think so. What you say makes sense, but honestly, I've confused myself completely with the whole family thing. So I'm kind of a bit lost myself. So I, I would I would say, Bo, I think you're right, and that I was saying it. Uh, I was I was saying it in, incorrectly. Yeah, they they don't have a platonic ideal that ever existed of this is what family is or anything like that. This is images of images of images of images kind of thing. So for me, was somebody about to say something? Sounds like it. I think Bo was, and then I think it cut out. I think we may have lost. Or Bill, was that you, yeah. Bill? Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, you're uh, good. Yeah. So uh, for me, this this is the big. I, I think uh, we we keep losing you, Bill. Okay. Uh, well, I found it exciting because it's not just a family discussion. It's because it's anti-Oedipal. It's also very anti-Lacanian. So there's just that one sentence about Lacan, but that's huge. Ooh, that's actually really true. We should go over it. Uh, so the... Uh, the 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 line here they're going after is Lacan's sort of concept, and again, uh, Guattari uh, will just say had a contentious relationship with Lacan and psychoanalysis coming before him. Um, but uh, when Lacan says, "Come most freely," in, uh, the, what appears to come most freely into play in what is called the analytic dialogue, in fact, depends on a subfoundation that is reducible to essential, a few essential and formalizable articulations. That's 
basically them saying, see, proof. Everything's preformed and arranged in advance. All you need to do is get these basic things going, and we've got all of psychoanalysis. And I think this is almost also a joke on the uh, sort of... Uh, we've been reading a lot of Bergson. Uh, one, of, one of Bergson's things that I know Deleuze completely agrees with is that... Uh, uh, problems are not meant to be solved by philosophy. The philosophy is not meant to be there. Like if you, if, uh, what is the line he says? Uh, uh, every problem gets its perfect answer or something like that. There's always a, some kind, what is it, Lou? Uh, I paraphrased it with, um, every problem gets the solution it deserves. Yes. Uh, the, the idea of if I create a problem, there's always a direct answer. And that's not interesting because that's more sort of, you know, research science and things like that. Philosophy is meant for other things. Um, and this very much is sort of, I think, mocking the idea of, well, if we can reduce everything down to a few preformed things always, maybe we should take a look at what the fuck, how we got those preformed things in the first place. Um, and whether or not they're even real. And it's a very fair question, I think. It, it, it feels like they're mocking Lacan here. I don't know. Bill, is that what you got out of it too? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's just the Oedipal. That's, it's not just family, it's Oedipal, right? And so it's clearly Lacan. This is Guattari more than Deleuze or maybe the combination. But I, I thought, I thought there was a, this was a very strong... Um, alternative to, to that, that fixation on Oedipal. And then, uh, I don't know if it's here where we've read it, but then he's saying, you know, this is, this is the agenda of, of that type of psychoanalysis, is to flatten it and to make everything conform to this capitalist model of family. Ooh, and I think actually that's, uh, we're about to hit that. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump to the next paragraph because I think, um, I do want to, I do want to get to that point because it's, yeah, we're starting we're starting to get to the point of interior and exterior and imminent limits. Um, Oedipus at last. In the end, it is very simple operation, one that indeed readily lends itself to formalization, although it involves universal history. We have seen in what sense schizophrenia was the absolute limit of every society, inasmuch as it sets in motion decoded and deterritorialized flows that it restores to desiring production, at the bounds of all social production, and capitalism, the relative limit of every society, inasmuch as it axiomatizes the decoded flows and re-territorializes the deterritorialized flows. We have also seen that capitalism finds in schizophrenia its own exterior limit, which it is continually repelling and exercising. Well, capitalism itself produces its imminent limits, which it never ceases to displace and enlarge. But capitalism still needs a displaced interior limit in another way, precisely in order to neutralize or repel the absolute exterior limit, the schizophrenic limit. It needs to internalize this limit, this time by restricting it, by causing it to pass no longer between social production and desiring production that breaks away from social production, but inside social production, between the form of social production and the form of a familial reproduction to which social production is reduced, between the social aggregate and the private sub-aggregate to which the social aggregate is applied. Uh, to do a quick summary of this, uh, they're discussing how Oedipus is applied inside of this world, inside of capital, and why it happens and how it gets applied to the moment of social reproduction, the reason. Uh, 
that we need to basically in order for us to have a limit inside of what is ultimately a very fascistic state uh we need to be able to uh do that through the personal and social relations of people and if we can do that through oedipus by saying here is how you relate to everyone and that's your starting point ha 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 now you're fucked and we throw everyone into this ping pong machine that basically is capital as people bounce around each other that social production that form of it in the form of familiar reproduction which social production is reduced is always 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 in the form of oedipus and because of that we're always 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 limited by the nature of where we start Oedipus is this displaced or internalized limit where desire lets itself be caught. The Oedipal Triangle is the personal and private territoriality that corresponds to all of capitalism's efforts at social re-territorialization. Oedipus was always the displaced limit for every social formation, since it is the displaced represented of desire. But in the primitive formations, this limit remains vacant. Precisely insofar as the flows are coded and the interplay of alliances and filiations keeps families extended according to the scale of the determinations of the social field, preventing any secondary reduction of the latter to the former. In the despotic formations, the Oedipal limit is occupied, symbolically occupied, but not lived or inhabited, inasmuch as the imperial incest affects an overcoding that in turn surveys the entire social field from above, the repressing representation. The formal operations of flattening, extrapolation, and so on that later belong to Oedipus are already sketched out, but within a symbolic space where the object from on high is formed. It is only in the capitalist formation that the Oedipal limit finds itself not only occupied, but inhabited and lived, in the sense in which these social images produced by the decoded flows actually fall back on restricted familial images invested by desire. It is at this point in the imaginary that Oedipus is constituted at the same time as it completes its migration in the in-depth elements of representation. The displaced represented has become, as such, the representation of desire. Hence, it goes without saying that this becoming or this constitution does not develop under the categories imagined in the earlier social formation, since the imaginary Oedipus results from such a becoming and not the universe. Not the inverse. Sorry. Um, ah, my eyes. I'm going to reread that. Uh, hence, it goes without saying that the bec this, this becoming or this constitution does not develop under the categories imagined in the earlier social formation, since the imaginary Oedipus results from such a becoming and not the inverse. It is not via a flow of shit or a wave of incest that Oedipus arrives, but via the decoded flows of capital money. The waves of incest and shit are only secondary derivatives of the latter, insofar as they transport the private persons to which the flows of capital are reduced or applied, which explains the complex origin of the relation that is completely distorted in the psychoanalytic equation, shit equals money. In reality, it is a question of encounters or conjunctions of derivatives and resultants between decoded flows. Uh, I had I had read ahead earlier. So when I was talking about uh, Oedipus and how it how family worked inside of the primitive construct, uh, they say it here: the primitive formations, this limit remains vacant. There is no direct Oedipal 
representation there, precisely insofar as the flows are coded and as the interplay of alliances and affiliations keeps families extended according to the scale of the determinations of the social field, preventing any secondary reduction of the latter to the former. Um, the nature of how the primitive in their views, the way the primitive man exists is uh, he lives essentially uh, uh, within his means at almost a survival level consistently and that family is uh, their consistent way of surviving and the social field in the place that they live is what determines the size of their family what determines their production what determines what they do and how they do it it's uh think of it as uh, being in survival mode uh, you do what you need to do in order to keep going, and the primitive man lived inside of this place, making the furniture that he needed to make for everyone else, uh, harvesting, cooking, hunting, primitive, uh, whatever needed to happen. Uh, we did those things because that's the necessity around the smaller groups. As we moved from these smaller groups to these larger things inside of the uh, despotic, uh, as they talk about it here, um, Sorry to jump ahead. Where where is the despotic? Um, uh, in the despotic formations, the Oedipal limit is occupied, symbolically occupied, but not lived or inhabited. And as much as the imperial incest affects an overcoating, then in turn surveys the entire social field from above. Uh, we are told what to be done by the emperor. We are told what to be done by the man on high, the king, uh, or in our case, even the president. Um, the, these, this person who has a bird's eye view of the entire situation, I do not. I am willing to assume that he, the leader, the God, uh, representative of God, is able to tell me what I need to be doing. And he lays those things out. Uh, however, um, it is, it, well, it is occupied, it is not inhabited and lived inside of that space by every single person. The Oedipal formation is something that exists very, very sort of outlaid um, as a symbol. Within capital, the Oedipal limit is moved down to my place where I am at. Uh, inhabited and lived, and in the sense in which the social images produced by decoded flows fall back on restricted familial images invested by desire. Uh, where I live and everything I deal with is is about kind of reinforcing the Oedipal reality of my life. Uh, and finally, I'm able to inhabit and live inside of Oedipus and have him shape everything uh, that happens around me. That is my interpretation of this paragraph. I really like this paragraph, and I really hope I'm right because I like my interpretation of it. If I'm wrong, please let me know and break my heart right now. I will wait. I'm, I have no pressure to move on because this is important for me to understand. Um, I'm not restating the thesis statement. Bo, this is in response essentially to what you were talking about earlier when we talk about uh, how capital and Oedipus as an image, as an image of an image of an image came from. Uh, the sort of natural pressures of social life in the primitive created the body. Uh, we then moved to having the body be this god from above, the Oedipal who's overlooking, and now it's all surrounding us and, and everything we do, that Oedipal limit, inhabited and lived by all of us. Um, the way I'm kind of reading this, which I think goes along with you, Brooks, is that uh, I'm seeing this as a sort of progression from uh, the group and the multiple to the individual and the ego. 
And you know, so we're starting with groups and families and alliances, and uh, you know, there might be this sort of vacant uh, idea of the individual there, but they are totally within you know their familial and social field. They're totally about, like you said, surviving and doing what they need to to survive. Uh, and then you know, in the despotic regime, there's this part I'm not quite as clear on, but like my idea is that there's a a filling in of that idea of the ego with the despot and and sort of subjugating oneself to you know this master signifier in some form, uh, and it's only under capitalism that we really conceive of the private person as a subject unto themselves with their own uh, desires, possibly. So I think I understand what you two just said, and I think I agree, but I can't really make the jump to the language of the displaced representative and the representation of desire. This is this is where I added my comment about Ouroboros. Anybody um, like uh, the the original displaced represented uh, was. Uh, I'm, I'm reading it as it was desire. It was the individual's desire, um, and so there's this production process that you know created these three stages, and then finally in the last step, the the uh, this empty triangle of Oedipus has come to represent desire itself, sort of. Uh, eating its own tail, claiming this territory that uh, that it wasn't before. Yeah, so, okay, so I'm pro I'll probably uh, be content with not understanding this, but I want to formulate why I think it's important. Also, uh, or I think it's pretty obvious that it is important. They introduce this section about how Oedipus um, moved through the systems with um, the, with the sentence that Oedipus was always the displaced limit for every social formation since it's the displaced representative of desire and um, the la they end basically the well they they come in capitalism to the conclusion that the displaced representative has become as such the representation of desire. And basically, if I understand correctly, this is basically restating the the thesis of the simulacra, like uh, that we have um, the signified and the referent fall in one. But, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But I can't really figure out the mechanics of all of that. <laughs> well, let's um, let's save, put a pin in that for our review because I think that is it's a really great place for us to spend a little bit of time, just not during the reading. I think because I think we could dive a little deeper. Plus, they get into a little bit more of that as we kind of go on. I think a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna move on to the next paragraph unless anyone has any comments or thoughts. In Oedipus, there is a recapitulation of the three states, or the three machines, for Oedipus makes ready in the territorial machine as an empty, unoccupied limit. It takes form in the despotic machine as a symbolically occupied limit. 
but it is filled and carried to completion only by becoming the imaginary Oedipus of the capitalist machine. The despotic machine preserved the primitive territorialities, and the capitalist machine resuscitates the Urstat as one of the poles of its axiomatic. It makes, makes the despot into one of its images. That is why Oedipus gathers up everything. Everything is found again in Oedipus, which is indeed the result of universal history, but in the singular sense in which capital is already this result. Fetishes, idols, images, and simulacra. Here we have the whole series. Territorial fetishes, despotic idols or symbols. Then everything is recapitulated in the images of capitalism, which shapes and reduces them to the Oedipal simulacrum. The representative of the local group with Laius, the territoriality with Shukasta, the despot with Oedipus himself, a motley painting of everything that has ever been believed. It comes as no surprise that Freud looks to Sophocles for the central images of Oedipus the despot. The myth become tragedy in order to make the image radiate in two contrary directions. The ritual primitive direction of totem and taboo and the primitive direction of modern man the dreamer. Oedipus can be a myth, a tragedy, or a dream. It always expresses the displacement of the limit. Um, so with my comment there, so it was all your desire all along. I think, Alyosha, you're saying that I should amend that to your private desire or maybe just private desire. Uh, you know, they're, they're taking all these desires that formed the territorial and the despotic regimes uh, and in capitalism, it gets reduced to private desire. You want this. That's at least I'm reading that part in the uh, middle of the paragraph there, editing with the Oedipal Simulacrum. That's how I read it as well. Um, again, the idea that under capital we're able to say, oh, well, this is actually what you always wanted. And that sort of, I don't know, they, they, they lose me a little bit um, because I don't, Freud looks to Sophocles for the central image of Oedipus the despot, the myth become tragedy, uh, in order to make the image radiate in two contrary directions, primitive and private. I'm not following that entire, that whole line of thought. Lost. Well, I think, uh, like, that's just what, uh, like, are you confused about uh, the private and the primitive uh, right. distinction? I think that's actually just the how he builds two um, arguments in the two books that are referenced. Well, actually, he they just name totem and taboo but um basically we have on the one hand uh, freud's application of the oedipus to the psyche like the psy and how he develops this psychology that's very um well it's actually designed as a clinical thing like it's designed as treatment right so that's and in there, there we have the private Oedipus, and then um, we have the primitive direction where he develops this whole um, theory of how culture came to be in totem and taboo, um, and with uh, with how where, where this thing becomes the myth um, of how. Um, 
basically society came to be or civilization came to be oh so okay well because i don't know freud that well totem and taboo is a book and uh that's a now that i've googled that that's what they're referencing i uh was assuming they were making because uh, earlier the italics what they use fetishes idols images and simulacra are examples of fetishes of idols and symbols they're, they're they basically run through the representation of things that we have i assume totem and taboo was more of that uh but that's my bad uh totem and taboo let me google that one uh, that, that helps a lot thank you lou so I'm not ex well. I'm not really uh, well versed in all the technicals of Freud's work, but I think Totem and Taboo is um, the book where he develops this whole thing about the uh, the band of brothers and um, ki uh, that actually killed a father. Yes, it looks like it, and it's and it gets deep into uh, just generalized uh, the horrors of incest is the name of the first chapter. So uh, yes gets into the stories there and uh, things of totemism and taboo desires that uh, yes Wait, so this is this is them actually making commentary on uh, comes as no surprise that Freud looks to Sophocles in order to make the image radiate in two contrary directions the ritual primitive direction of his book on incest uh, and the private direction of a modern man the dreamer it's because Oedipus can be a myth, a tragedy, or a dream. It always expresses the displacement of the limit. Uh, okay, uh, it's, it's starting to... I'm going to want to spend time thinking about that, but thank you, that helps me a lot, because I didn't... I guess I'm too stupid. Totem and Taboo is a Freud's... One of his seminal works, actually, it turns out. That's what Google tells me. Kind of an important one. <clears throat> Well, and, and the other book, um, The Private Direction of Modern Man, The Dreamer, would be The Dream Analysis, yes. obviously, then. So where dreams are conceived as uh, a private thing, but in this edible framework. So my question now, right now, is that why is it that this comes as no surprise that he wants to take Oedipus in these two different directions? Oh, if we have two directions, which is if we, the the way, and and this is me again. Uh, I can't say I'm an expert on Freud because I didn't even know Totem and Taboo was the name of one of his fucking books. So just take whatever I'm saying with a chunk of salt. Um, but if we take kind of the two directions, uh, intuitively to me, it feels like they're saying, look, you've got the two opposites, which is our primitive drives, and then ultimately modern man which is better than that we're better than our drives and it's our dreams and uh, a lot of freud's work in dreams very much plays into the i don't want to say the hopeful or the betterment or all of that but it's uh, the the vision into the better side of our soul mentally so you have the ritual primitive direction of what is as i'm reading through kind of a rather brutal book about kind of the worst parts of us as if it's bred into us and part of just the human condition and we have to battle this sort of demon that's inside of us the primitive side and then the private direction of modern man the dreamer which is a uh, sort of our hopeful side is the two sides of that that covers essentially everything uh the quote right before that um a motley painting of everything that has ever been believed 
fits into those two categories pretty cleanly. <laughs> it's all the worst of us that we try to repress, and then all the stuff we're trying to learn about ourselves and our dreams, which is the opposite direction. Man, we're down to five people. What happened to this talk? Oh, I'm mismanaging it that poorly. <sighs> Everyone's busy. We should, uh, I'm going to start talking to everyone about moving back to noon. Um, I think we will get more people that way. Let's move on to the next paragraph. Uh, Oedipus would be nothing if the symbolic position of an object from on high in the despotic machine did not first make possible the folding and flattening operations that will constitute Oedipus in the modern social field, the triangulation's cause. Whence the extreme importance, but also the indeterminate nature, the non-decidability of the argument advanced by psychoanalysis's most profound innovator, which makes the displaced limit pass between the symbolic and the imaginary, between symbolic castration and imaginary Oedipus, for castration in the order of the despotic signifier as the law of the despot or the effect of the object on on high is in reality the formal condition of the Oedipal images that will be deployed in the field of eminence left uncovered by the withdrawal of a signifier. I reach desire when I arrive at castration. What does the desire castration equation signify if not in fact a prodigious operation that consists in replacing desire under the law of the despot, in introducing lack there at the deepest levels, and in rescuing us from Oedipus by means of a fantastic regression, a fantastic and brilliant regression. Someone had to do it. No one helped me, as Lacan says, to shake loose the yoke of Oedipus and carry it to the point of its autocritique. But it it is like the story of the resistance fighters who, wanting to destroy a pylon, balanced the plastic charges so well that the pylon blew up and fell back into its hole. From the symbolic to the imaginary, from castration to Oedipus, and from the despotic age to capitalism, inversely, there is the progress leading to the withdrawal of the overseeing and overcoating object from on high, which gives way to a social field of eminence where the decoded flows produce images and level them down. Whence the two aspects of the signifier, a barred transcendent signifier taken in a maximum that distributes lack, and an eminent system of relations between minimal elements that come to fill the uncovered field, somewhat similar in traditional terms to the way one goes from the Parmidian, Parmenidian being to the atoms of Democritus, a transcendent object that is more or more spatialized, spiritualized, what? A transcendent object that is more and more spiritualized for a field of forces that is more and more imminent, more and more internalized. This describes the evolution of the infinite debt through Catholicism, then the Reformation, the extreme spiritualization of the despotic state and the extreme internalization of the capitalist field define bad conscience. The latter is not cynicism's contrary. It is, in private persons, the correlate of the cynicisms of social persons. All the cynical tactics of bad conscience, just as Nietzsche and then Lawrence and then Miller analyzed them to arrive at a definition of civilized European man. The hypnosis 
and the rain of images, the torpor they spread, the hatred of life and of all that is free, of all that passes and flows, the universal effusion of the death instinct, depression and guilt used as a means of contagion, the kiss of the vampire, aren't you ashamed to be happy? Follow my example, I won't let you go before you say it's my fault. Oh, ignoble contagion of the depressives, neurosis as the only illness consisting in making others ill. This is such a fucking long paragraph. What the fuck, man? Let me deceive, rob, slaughter, kill, but in the name of the social order, and so daddy mommy will be proud of me. The double direction given to resentment, the returning back against oneself, and the projection against the other. The father is dead. It's my fault. Who killed him? It's your fault. It's the Jews, the Arabs, the Chinese, all the resources of racism and segregation, the abject desire to be loved, the whimpering at not being loved enough, at not being understood, concurrent with the reduction of sexuality to the dirty little secret, this whole priest's psychology. There is not a single one of these texts that does not find an Oedipus and of milk and honey its good provider. Nor is there a single one of these tactics that does not serve and develop in psychoanalysis with the latter as the new avatar of the ascetic ideal. This feels like they've just kind of about halfway through decided to just rant. Um, I, do lo- I do love that rant, though, at the end there. I think that's good. No, and I, I think I, I, I almost want to re-record me reading it now that I've... Now that I've reread it, also again. you definitely skipped a paragraph break in the middle there. That's why it was so long. What? This fucking book. My PDF is all broken. Where the fuck is that paragraph break? Just so is I that can know. Transcendent object. Wow. You should see my PDF. There is no paragraph break. <laughs> oh god. No, but honestly, these paragraph breaks seem odd. Anyway. The, the German text has way less paragraphs than the English text. Oh, interesting. Well, let's let's uh, let's take what would be the first paragraph and take a second. Um, I both of these I think can be summed up pretty easily. And let me let me try it. Uh, the first paragraph here is. Again, the critique of Oedipus saying that, uh, but it was specifically mocking Lacan uh, in the in the guise of Oedipus and saying, yes, you've done so much to destroy Oedipus, you've given us Oedipus, is kind of the joke. That's how I read it. Uh, Sorry, I got distracted by looking for a GIF. Can you say that again? That's fair. I mean, I, you need a Decepticon GIF always. GIF always. Uh, just have that on 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 run. But. Uh, the the whole thing is basically a joke about the concept of how Lacan, who, as they call him, and I think it's fair to say that he was a guy who completely broke the mold of what psychoanalysis was supposed to be and what it was capable of and how it looked at the world. But ultimately what he did is he basically said, yes, I have freed you from Oedipus. Now here is Oedipus. And it's just a setup again. It's the same shit, is what they're saying. It's all under the same shit. You, you fucked up. Uh, the the example they give, I really like, of the resistance fighters. To destroy a pylon, place the plastic charges so perfectly around it that when they destroy it, the pylon just falls right back into its own hole and nothing changed. Um, 
I, I kind of like that because it it is not it is not an exaggeration to say Lacan was really hoping to do something truly revolutionary with psychoanalysis, and a lot of his works is in that direction. And again, I like a lot of his works, uh, at least reading them. But uh, Lacan says. Uh, no one helped me, as Lacan says, to shake loose the yoke of Oedipus and carry it to the point of its autocritique. Um, but ultimately, he just gave us more Oedipus. Just changed uh, around a little bit and reformulated it. Doesn't what get destroyed. Do you hear that there. part of Oedipus is replaced by, like, lack, castration, and the phallus? Yes. It's a, a different triangulation, essentially. I don't know. I'm just like I'm reading that sentence about the uh, bar transcendent signifier taken in a maximum that distributes lack. I'm imagining like Oprah saying to her audience, "You get some lack, and you get some lack. Everybody gets some lack." I think they're they're again their joke here um, when they say uh, there's some similar in traditional terms. The way one goes from a permidian parmenidian being to the atoms of Democritus. Uh, it's a little bit of that same thing when they're like, look, it's ultimately, and this is a very simplistic thing, and I'm sure someone who's more skilled in the classical will mock us, but um, the, the idea of Parmenides basically said all is one, one is all, that uh, everything is being all of that stuff. Uh, and Democritus was about, well, actually, everything's made up of smaller things, and it's like, yeah, but still. <laughs> like, it's... it's uh, reformulating a thing into a way that yes is a little bit better but ultimately says the same fucking thing and that's their critique here of lacan is it's what i read that um from the symbolic to the imaginary castration to oedipus from despotic age to capitalism inversely there is the progress leading to the withdrawal of the overseeing and overcoating object from on high which gives way to a social field of eminence where the decoded flows produce images and level them down Whence the two aspects of the signifier, a barred transcendent signifier taken in a maximum that distributes lack, and an imminent system of relations between minimal elements that come to fill the uncovered field. Again, back to the two poles, the two sides, and the previous paragraph where they talked about ultimately the taboo, uh, that thing that we have inside of us naturally that determines how we behave and we cannot control, and the... Uh, the relations and ways that we deal with other people that come to fill the uncovered field, which would be in Freud, the dreams. So ultimately they're saying you've, you've basically blown it up, but in it, you've allowed it to fall into its same place. Sure. You made the pylon a little shorter and you did destroy some stuff, but ultimately it hasn't changed. The German translation translates the bit about the pylon actually so that the pylon isn't destroyed at all. It just jumps up and falls back down. The second paragraph here, oh, or, or the second half of what I read here, I think is where I start. I don't have enough knowledge of what they're referencing here, but it feels like this paragraph is a lot of them referencing contemporary moments and experiences that are happening at a spiritual point throughout French society and the society they're experiencing uh, that they are using as examples to mock about how things move from, as they would use, the Promidian being to Adams of Democritus or from Freud to Lacan, this, hey, we're changing, but really more things change the more they stay the same kind of mentality. 
Yeah, I think that's, I think they're using spiritualized in a sort of derisive sense here. Uh, you know, um, saying that you're not really being materialist, you're just kind of making up words and representations. Yes. And I do like some of them are fantastic. Um, depression and guilt used as a means of contagion, the kiss of the vampire. Aren't you ashamed to be happy? Follow my example. I won't let you go before I set you say it's my fault. That's that's squattery bitching about psychoanalysis analysis. Like that sounds like something he would write. <clears throat> Which is kind of interesting uh, in the context of Zizek book, uh, Enjoy Your Symptom. Being supposedly a continuation of Lacanian uh, ideas. Yeah, he takes a, he takes a different, uh, he takes a different tact, but it's, I mean, he, he does have a just general uh, cynicism about humanity as well. So I'm not sure it's that different, but it, the, um, it's, the father is dead. It's my fault who killed him. It's your fault. It's the Jews, the Arabs, the Chinese, all the resources of racism and segregation. Just all of these things. It's a, all about Oedipus. I, they're bringing back all of it, It's a rant, and this is a long rant, and I wish I'd read it more as a rant, because once I got towards the end, it was like, oh, this is just them bitching about, there is not a single one of these tactics that does not find in Oedipus its land of milk and honey. In Oedipus, we're able to have racism take off, segregation take off, uh, self-hatred take off, the death instinct take off. These, this, is, this lives inside of Oedipus, because Oedipus at its nature is dealing with representation in this way. I actually really like this rant now that I'm sort of rereading it and going back over it. There's a hell of a paragraph. They really need to figure out paragraph breaks better in this fucking PDF, that's for sure. Uh, to read a comment from Alyosha. Um, they seem to point to the ascetic ideal linking monasticism with Oedipus, like monastic Christian spirituality and Oedipal disciplining of a self-Foucault style. I think that's fair. I mean, they, they make that comment a lot, and it's in a lot of Guattari's teachings that uh, essentially psychoanalysis teaches you that you're the center of all your own problems and the, the fault of all of your own problems. Again, pushes people towards that ego-centric thing of the world exists around you, um, you are in it, and it is all around for you. You're the center of your own desires, the problems you have, everything. Nor is there a single one of these tactics that does not serve and develop in psychoanalysis with the latter as the new avatar of the ascetic ideal. I will continue now, uh, unless anyone has a last comment on that paragraph. Once again, psychoanalysis does not invent Oedipus. It merely provides the latter a last territoriality, the couch, and a last law, the analyst, as despot and money collector. But the mother as the simulacrum of territoriality and the father as the simulacrum of the despotic law, with the slashed, split, castrated ego, are the products of capitalism insofar as it engineers an operation that has no equivalent in the other social formations. Everywhere else, the familial position is merely a stimulus to the investment of the social field by desire. The familial images function only by opening onto social images, to which they become coupled, or which they confront in the course of struggles 
rules and compromises so that what is invested through the breaks and segments of families is the economic, political, and cultural breaks of the field into which they are plunged. Uh, CF Indimbu Schizophrenia. This is the case even in the peripheral zones of capitalism, where the colonizers' efforts at edipalizing the indigenous population, African Oedipus, find themselves contradicted by the breakup of the family along the lines of social exploitation and oppression. But it is at the soft center of capitalism, in the temperate zones of the bourgeoisie, that the colony becomes intimate and private, interior to each person. It is there that the flow of the investment of desire which travels from the familial stimulus to the social organization or disorganization or disorganization is as it were covered over by a reflux that flattens the social investment onto the familial investment serving as pseudo organizer the family has become the locus of retention and resonance of all social determinations. It falls to the reactionary investment of the capitalist field to apply all the social images to the simulacra of the restricted family, with the result that wherever one turns, one no longer finds anything but father-mother, this edible filth that sticks to our skin. Yes, I desired my mother and wanted to kill my father, a single subject of enunciation, Oedipus, for all the capitalist statements, and between the two, the leveling cleavage of castration. Can we talk about the difference in use they're making here between enunciation and statement? To this Please. Earlier? I Please. To ask about that. Uh, I have no idea. I'm, I'm asking if anyone else has an idea. Um... How I read when they use the difference is uh, the statement is when you directly state the thing. Enunciation is when it's implied in the language you use when you enunciate it. Or maybe I'm saying that backwards. Let me Google. Let me find out. They do mention it in the second paragraph when they're talking about how there's no individual fantasies, but only... Um, I think subjected fantasies and uh, it's another kind of group fantasy. It's the one where they have that um, that like example where the person says, "As a man, I understand you, but as a judge, I condemn you." With the former being enunciation and the latter being the statement. Okay, uh, so the the. Okay, so then uh, enunciation sort of has implied action within it, uh, or... Uh, enunciation is the private person. Yeah, the, the private versus the, uh, uh, the, the one that's sort of taken over by the body without organs, the one that's the story. Oh, this is what I desired all along. I, I condemn you because I must. I am a judge, however... Uh, privately, I have this other feeling. Enunciation uh, has a, uh, I don't know, a, a direct relationship uh, between saying a thing and feeling a thing uh, personally, whereas the public version is more around uh, the statement as part of a social machine. Subject of statement and enunciation, as is characteristic of the pseudo-individual fantasy. The duality is artificial derived and supposes the direct relationship proceeding from the statement to the collective agents of enunciation in the group fantasy. So this is about, uh, oh, yeah, no, this is the group and individual fantasy section. 
Interesting. So, uh, yeah, uh, they use the term enunciation a few times here for that very thing. Thank you, Taryn. Absolutely. Jesus. It's perfect. Does that answer, Doug? Uh, I think so, yeah. So there's just a sort of difference in uh, connotations of the group versus the individual here, the social. It sort of sounds to me like enunciation kind of cuts through the representation too in some ways. Like the way the way you said it about the judge privately, um, I might agree with you, but in this role and within this this paradigm, I'm going to rule uh, differently. That sounds to me like the the latter being codes, whereas I wonder if enunciation doesn't deal so directly in the written code in that. Or the, you know, the the more uh, semiotic code. Yeah, it's uh, basically uh, as a human to human, personal, private. I I'm the dichotomy between uh, who I am personally and who I have to be as part of the social machine I'm a part of, which, as they say, is completely fabricated. Yeah, because even those remarks about the pseudo-intellectual, right? Like, to me, that's somebody who figured out how to speak the code, but it's like that Nirvana song. You don't really know what you're saying, or in, in the converse, you're using really heavy terms that maybe you understand, but you're, you know, you're kind of, I don't want to stick with music, but you're kind of blinded by the light of it, right? Like, you're, you're speaking the code really well, but, you know, you're lacking the enunciation that is, like, uh, I don't want to say a more authentic articulation because I think that's a little too Sartre in here, but um, you know, you're 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 yeah, I guess the easy way to say it is you're caught in the code and the representation as opposed to doing something a little bit more um uh, shall we say imminent. It's it's it it's the, the machine that you're a part of, the assemblage. Uh, they use this they use this term a lot in a few other works as well when they talk about assemblages and machines. But it's you as your solo, sort of solo ego versus uh, your ego as it exists against others inside of social machines. And that's, that's where you enunciate, that you enunciate for the benefit of the machine, ultimately, not for yourself. And that's kind of the point they have is, a, it ends the paragraph, uh, a single subject of enunciation, Oedipus, for all the capitalist statements. Uh, and they basically just made a shitload of capitalist statements here and in the previous rant. Uh, and between the two, between the solo and the enunciated, uh, the leveling cleavage of castration. Can someone explain to me what the how they're using castration here, because I sort of understand it in the very Freudian sense, uh, you know, that, that uh, the fear of castration. Okay, uh, let, let me let me try. <laughs> um, if we go back very just a page, I'm actually not going to try to not go back too far. Um, let's let's just go back a page. Um, I'm going to quote them. Uh, directly, page to uh, top of 268. Um, uh, whence the extreme importance, but also indeterminate nature of the argument advanced by psychoanalysis' most profound innovator, Lacan, uh, which makes the displaced limit pass between symbolic and imaginary, between symbolic castration and imaginary Oedipus. 
for castration in the order of the despotic signifier as the law of the despot or the effective object from on high is in reality the formal condition of the Oedipal images that will be deployed in the field of eminence left uncovered by the withdrawal of the signifier. Uh, castration is, if, if we... <laughs> I think here they're referring to it, and they do it a little bit later when they make the joke of the ascetic, what's the line they use? Uh, the latter as the new avatar of the ascetic ideal. I think that's their reference of castration here, uh, where you're essentially destroying desires, desire castration. Uh, because we see as we have the two poles, we have the, uh, in Freud, we have the two poles of Oedipus. We have on the one side, uh, our taboo underlying desires, the desires gross, our desires are awful. Um, and then we have our, uh, our dream, our ideal, our high modern man. We are powerful. We are wonderful now and great. Uh, castration is about, uh, removing the prime, the primal, the, 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 sort of underlying desires, the ascetic ideal. That's kind of the point of the previous paragraph. That was my attempt. It was not very good. But I think that's what they're they're they I think that's what they're equating castration with here. That it's the the destruction of those sort of underlying desires. Um, at least in Lacanian terms, that's definitely what it is, is castration. But maybe not. I don't know. Uh, and so then what is the what's the idea of what the destruction of the desires is doing here? Why is it coming between these two uh, ideas of a subject? Oh, so if you have between the two, uh, when what they're talking about between the two is they're talking about the the thing I say myself, if we use the judge example, which I really like that Tiernan brought up, um, private person and the public persona that I have, the way I sort of feel uh, naturally. If you want to use that term, it's a little prescriptive here, but we'll just, I'm trying to make a point. Uh, don't confuse my finger for the moon I'm pointing at, please. Um, the uh, If we have the difference between the two, which is the thing I really believe and the thing I have to because of my position, between the two of them is the level and cleavage of castration because what's happened is I'm no longer really obeying my own desire I'm really not. I'm I'm living in where I can have these thoughts, but I have to have these other thoughts. And so they're talking about that that leveling cleavage of castration is that uh, sort of thing that's there. I'm always castrated because I have two sides that I'm balancing. And because of that, there's a nastration to it. And so they're sort of criticizing the idea that that is all that there is or can be, even if you see it as either two subjects or one. Yeah, I mean, they, I think on the one hand, they're saying, okay, so you have this thing where, yes, I desired my mother and I wanted to kill my father. Uh, a single subject of Annunciation Oedipus for all the capitalist statements. They, they're the semicolon there, and it, this is awkward writing, so I'm trying to interpret what they're trying to say here. But I think that's what they're saying is Oedipus is how we frame all of the capitalist statements and how we speak of at a societal level how I introduce myself socially. But yes, I wanted to design my mother and kill my father. That Oedipal filth is always stuck to my skin. Between these, the level and cleavage of castration. No, now that I'm saying that out loud, it makes less sense. God damn it. Well, that's fitting, isn't it? Fuck. 
let's save that for the review and try to get through. We've got uh, can, I'm gonna. Can I want to get through the, uh, the page real quick. We are two. Not to go to two seventy. Thank you. Marx said that Luther's merit was to have determined the essence of religion, no longer on the side of the object, interior religiosity, that the merit of Adam Smith and Ricardo was to have determined the essence or nature of wealth, no longer as an objective nature, but as an abstract and deterritorialized subjective essence, the activity of production in general. As this determination develops under the condition of capitalism, they objectify the essence all over again. They alienate and re-territorialize it, this time in the form of the private ownership of the means of production. So that capitalism is without a doubt the universal of every society, but only insofar as it is capable of carrying to a certain point its own critique. That is, the critique of the processes by which it re-enslaves what within it tends to free itself or to appear freely. The same thing must be said of Freud. His greatness lies in having determined the essence or nature of desire, no longer in relation to objects, aims, or even sources, but as an abstract subjective essence, libido or sexuality. But he still relates this essence to the family as the last territoriality of private man. Whence the position of Oedipus, marginal at first in the three essays, then centering more and more around desire. It is as though Freud were asking to be forgiven his profound discovery of sexuality by saying to us, well, at least it won't go any further than the family. The dirty little secret in place of the wide open space is glimpsed for a moment. The familialist reduction in place of the drift of desire. In place of the great decoded flows, little streams recoded in mommy's bed. Interiority in place of a new relationship with the outside. Throughout psychoanalysis, the discourse of bad conscience and guilt always rises up and finds its nourishment. What is called being cured. I like that last bit there. The way I'm reading that is that they're sort of talking about how uh, you know, in post-Victorian times, that something like the pleasure principle would be seen as very negative, so Freud had to hide it in the family. And turn back from, like, really thinking of desire. And the, the last bit, the last sentence, of uh, the discourse of bad conscience and guilt always rises up and finds its nourishment, nourishment what is called being cured. Uh, uh, and this feels sardonic. I would I read that as them saying, well, actually, bad consciousness and guilt, uh, by the nature of us saying that we need to cure them, are actually fed. And it's a little bit um, old parable of the man who uh, he gets up stakes dog to the ground outside of his house and every day beats the dog and it's chained up and a year or two pass and people walking by the dog lunges at everyone tries to bite them and the man says it's a good thing I chained and beat that dog isn't it um, this kind of what we do becomes the driver of the things we do even though we act as if one is the cause of the other or one is preventing the other being cured is a perpetual... Well, that's true. Actually, Alyosha, being cured is a perpetual relationship. Uh, that's one of the things uh, Guattari, I mean, was not silent about this. Uh, and they've talked about throughout this, the sort of nature of the capitalist management and business arrangement between Alan analysis analysis and an analyst that it's always ongoing and that they kind of are the machine is set up so that way the cure 
never actually cures, that it's constantly ongoing. And I, that last sentence, I think, I don't know, just refreshes that for me. Okay, one thing that we might want to talk about tomorrow in the review is how they use so the terms sub subjective and objective here. I think they've used this like that earlier, but I think we should talk about that. You're talking about the sentence, uh, as an abstractive and deterritorialized subjective essence, the activity of production in general, but as this determination develops under the condition of ca capitalism, they objectify the essence all over again. Because why not just mix and match these words? I would also wonder uh, what the original translation is. It, is it is it the same in the German translation, Lou? I, yes, and I think actually this is fairly consistent with how Marx talks about this stuff, but that doesn't make it easier. <laughs> well, no, and it's hard to tell if they're just utilizing Marx's language in order to communicate Marx's point, so then they can go through the critique and take it down, or whether they're actually agreeing with him on any of it. Uh, yes, put a point pin in that. We will have to bring that up tomorrow. Now I think we should uh, finish out the set section while we uh, got the time to do it. <clears throat> On two points, at least, Freud exonerates the real exterior family of any wrongs. The better to internalize the family and the wrongs in the person of the family's smallest member, the child. The way in which he posits an autonomous repression independent of social repression, the way in which he abandons the theme of the seduction of the child by the adult in order to substitute the individual fantasy that makes the real parents into so many innocents or even victims. That's, uh, that's... I, I'm sorry, I'm stopping there because that's a really, really powerful little critique of the concept of Oedipus. Makes real parents into so many innocents or victims. For the family must appear in two forms. One where doubtless it is guilty, but only in the manner in which the child lives it intensely, internally, and where it is confounded with the child's own guilt. The other where it is a tribunal of responsibility before which one stands as a guilty child and in relation to which one becomes a responsible adult. Oedipus's sickness and sanity, the family as an alienating factor and as an agent of de-alienation, if only through the way in which it is reconstituted in the transference. This is what Foucault has shown in his very fine analysis. The familialism inherent in psychoanalysis doesn't so much destroy classic psychiatry as shine forth as the latter's crowning achievement. After the madman of the earth and the madman of the despot comes the madman of family. What 19th century psychiatry had wanted to organize in the asylum, the imperative fiction of the family, reason the father and madness the child or minor, the parents who are ill only from their own childhood, all this finds its fulfillment outside the asylum, in psychoanalysis and in the consulting room of the analyst. Freud is the Luther and the Adam Smith of psychiatry. He mobilizes all the resources of myth, of tragedy, of dreams, in order to re-enslave desire, this time from within, an intimate theater. Yes, Oedipus is nevertheless the universal of desire, the product of universal history, but on one condition, which is not met by Freud, that Oedipus be capable, at least to a certain point, of conducting its autocritique. Universal history is nothing more than a theology if it does not seize control of the conditions of its own contingent singular existence, its irony, and its own critique. And what are these conditions, this point where the autocritique is possible and necessary? 
to discover beneath the familial reduction the nature of the social investments of the unconscious, to discover beneath the individual fantasy the nature of group fantasies, or what amounts to the same thing, to push the simulacrum to the point where it ceases to be the image of an image, so as to discover the abstract figures, the schizes flows that it harbors and conceals, to substitute for the private subject of castration, split into a subject of enunciation and a subject of the statement relating only to the two orders of personal images, the collective agents of enunciation that for their part refer to machinic arrangements. To overturn the theater of representation into the order of desiring production, this is the whole task of schizoanalysis. It's a great ending paragraph, actually. Is that is that two paragraphs? Was there supposed to be a fucking paragraph break in there I missed again? No, I think it's just one. All right. Yes. Still a very long fucking paragraph. But good. This one's much better than the other one. <laughs> Um, Doug, I'm going to want to spend some time in the review session going over universal history and what is really meant by it, if you're up for doing a little chat on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's going to be really important here. Obviously, they say it like 30 times. But I've, let's uh, let's take apart a couple things, and then we'll end for the day, because that's uh, the end of the paragraph. Um, I did like that early... Um, the the idea of uh, Oedipus uh, in a child, as if the child was naturally guilty and the parents were victims. Um, they, they use a footnote here. Eric Fromm, apropos of the analysis of little Hans in particular, has pointed to the increasingly clear evolution of Freud who comes to posit the child's guilt and exonerate the parental authority. Um, I mean, that's... Am I reading that right? That basically it's saying like, hey, isn't that funny? Boy, parents... They're the ones who are supposed to be taking care of the kid. They're the adults. They're the victims somehow in the edible complex of a five-year-old. Like it's, it's little Hans was like young, young, right? Five-year-old boy. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. I mean, I think that's tied into their, uh, um, mentioning of Luther here and sort of getting into notions of original sin and, uh, guilt. It's it's uh, and it's and it's this sort of natural guilt that comes with uh, the quelling of desires, and I, I it it's it's hard not to uh, sort of bring up the fact that Deleuze and I I've always liked this one of the things I've always liked about Deleuze is the belief that desires are uh, a positive force, sort of naturally, um, that there isn't a sort of evilness to them. But little Hans, it, here specifically, I really like that they're bringing up little Hans. Uh, little Hans, uh, dude who was a friend of Marx's, like his kid, scared of horses, and Freud was like, uh, because he was scared because because the horse has a huge horse stick. Am I wrong? That's what I remember. <laughs> like it's so, the, everything Freud always comes up fucked up whenever I talk about it, and I feel like an asshole. But it's a uh, he was the horse horse's dick was just gigantic and so that's what had him freaked out and um like they were going to castrate little hans because he was apparently obsessed with horse dick like it's a really awful story and a 
I, I, I'm not wrong here. I feel like I'm not wrong here. I'm going to look up little Hans and spend some time doing that. But um, again, the idea that the parents are the victims or innocent inside of this, instead of people who are absolutely affecting the growth of their child and are responsible for it and that the children are effectively innocent is such an inversion of how things are done. But again, if we assume that all of us have this Oedipal complex naturally, we are guilty from birth and that over time we can learn to make ourselves better. That's that natural asceticism they made fun of earlier, that we start with you know original sin and we can make ourselves better over time as long as we work to it. That's the idea of modern man. It's such a load of shit. And to that point, this seems um, this seems to dig even deeper into their theme about uh, individual and, and group fantasy. So, right, like even with the aestheticism, right, the idea is that that's going to be an individual fantasy, um, as though you've broken out of the group fantasy, right? As they say here, um, the way in which he posits, he being Freud. The way in which he posits an autonomous repression independent of social repression, the way in which he abandons the theme of the seduction of the child by the adult in order to substitute the individual fantasy that meets the real parents into so many innocents or even victims, right? So this is kind of like what, what they mean even by the aesthetic, is that this it's this way of like seemingly carpent carp seemingly um demarking everything at the individual as though it excludes the group even though you're bringing the group into it, right? And the converse seems to hold too, because like the, um, I think part of the reason they're, they're continuing this critique of it is it's another way of trying to say that like the ego might be conditioned by the superego, but you know, the ego is kind of like on its own autonomous terms and complexes, especially the Oedipal work autonomously, right? as though they're not conditioned, as though they're not in relation to things. But as they said earlier, right, there, there aren't individual fantasies without group fantasies, right? You can't just unplug yourself from the social. And uh, real quick, I did a little bit of little Hans Googling. Um, Are you going to gonna tell us more about Horstein? Well, it's, it's because it's, I, I think it's important. They, they use it as the example here. And the line is, in order to substitute the individual fantasy that makes the real parents into so many innocents or victims, for the family must appear in two forms. One where it's doubtless it is, it is guilty, but only in the manner in which the child lives it intensely internally and where it is confounded with the child's own guilt. The other where it is a tribunal of responsibility before which one stands as a guilty child this this two-faced thing is i think it's representative of the image created by capital in how we kind of live every day especially under the erstat but to go back so uh i confirmed it lil hans what i said was right lil hans uh freud was like oh no he's scared of horses because the horse has a gigantic horse penis and uh that's why he's scared and uh Freud and Graf noted, I'm quoting, how Lil Hans' fear of horses was reduced upon Lil Hans's description of a fantasy in an in analysis section, which suggested the resolution of his castration anxiety and with his acceptance of an Oedipus complex, with his admission in another fantasy that he would love to replace his father and have children with his mother. Uh, and that fixed him, they said. So, fuck. Jesus Christ. You know so, what this means, right? Little Hans is Nietzsche, right? He is the reincarnation of the Ubermensch. Oh. 
Oh, is that what makes the Ubermensch so uber? The horse stick? Uh, that, that's my recollection. <laughs> Wilhelm's fear of horses could also be understood in symbolic terms. Freud felt the large genitals of the animals led him to experiencing the displacement of a fear of his father onto the horses. The blacks surrounded their eyes, reminded little Hans of his father, with their blinkers resembling the man's glasses. Ah, Freud was such an ass. I was I, I spent last week I've been researching uh, for another project a writing thing I'm doing on asylums of the time and how they treated mental health in 1850s and in Victorian times, and every time I read them, just like Jesus Christ, we've we've come so far, and yet at the same time, a lot of the shit we're doing is kind of the same, and this is, just feels like it. Yeah, it's really sad to read about like the uh, deinstitutionalization in America, and you know, I mean, how shitty the uh, asylums were, but then just kind of ending any sort of uh, you know, social approach to treatment whatsoever doesn't seem much better. It's an interesting, for me, it's their use of Lil Hans here, just to sort of put a fine point on it, uh, in this last paragraph is is them projecting this as a great example. And they're like, look, the, the idea of how repression works, how desire is repressed, how everything we have sh is shaped, and something as simple as a horse freaked a kid out, which... Maybe that's just a contingent event. We don't even know, but they're like, oh no, it's because giant horse dick. And of course, now that he's admitted and we've got him to confess that he wants to have sex with his mom and have children with his mother and replace his father, now he's fixed. When in reality, all that's done is basically forced him into this tiny little box that he will never be able to get away from. And it's gross. displacement, right? So, all right. Uh, with that, I'm going to close out our reading today. Uh, we will do a review session tomorrow. It'll be the same time and place. Um, I think we're going to end up uh, probably trying to move our time around again. Uh, 10 a.m. seems to have not done well in order to get more people into our talks. We've actually lost a few of our staple people. Uh, that I want to get back. But uh, tomorrow, let's do a review of the section. And then uh, we are going to be doing a change up in our format as well for chapter four, which we'll be discussing a little bit later this week. But for now, thank all of you for joining us. And uh, we look forward to joining us in a review session tomorrow.
Thank you.